Thanks, Paul. Can everybody hear me okay? I, uh, Tim says I'm too quiet, so I'm mic'd up this morning. I have a, I have a quieter voice. Can you all hear in the back? Rob looks uncertain. Okay. All right. We're going to go with it. <laughs> all right. Well, it's great to be with you all this morning, and uh, I'm always thankful to, to have an opportunity to study the Word and to bring it to you. And uh, in one, one sense, I, I feel for you with the, the feeling of, of whiplash that you probably get when Tim starts back in a series and then we take a break and I'm doing a, a totally different passage um, so thankful for your your patience with that. But at the same time, I was thinking about it this week and um, just thinking about how even though this is a, a very different passage, it's not First Thessalonians, but um, and yet the the topic is still similar and still still relates really well. And I was I was encouraged by the the message message last week that that Tim preached for us. And I was thinking about a couple things that that Tim said. He was talking about the um, the the term work of faith that that Paul mentions in First Thess, and um, Tim said that it's our our faith that motivates the work that we do. He defined faith as believing God as He has revealed Himself in the Bible. He defined work as as all obedience. Um, and so if you think about the relationship between faith and works, um, I was thinking about this, this passage that we'll, we'll be in today um, and how it may not seem on the surface like it relates, but it actually does. Um, so you can go ahead and turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Proverbs chapter 3. And as you know, obviously, the book of Proverbs is all about the topic of wisdom. And so you're probably thinking, what does that have to do with with faith and works? And yet, it has a lot more to do than than we might think. I I don't know what comes to your mind when you think of the term wisdom. You might think of some gray-headed old man that always magically knows the the answers to all your problems in life. You might think of, I don't know, Gandalf, whoever. But... um, and yet, I would say a lot of us probably struggle to define wisdom, um, and it can seem like something that just just happens to you, um, and something that's 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 hard to know how to cultivate, hard to know how to to seek after. Well, you've probably heard Pastor Farrell if you've been around here very long. You've probably heard him define wisdom as skillful living, and and spiritual wisdom, I guess, would be. Would be wisdom and skillfulness in in living um, in spiritual areas. Well, what does what does wisdom have to do with the with faith and works and the relationship between faith and works that we were talking about last week? Well, if you if you boil down a lot of what the book of Proverbs says, you could put it this way: faith plus works plus consistent practice over time equals wisdom or leads to wisdom or are the ingredients of wisdom. You have to believe what God says, you have to put it into practice, and you have to keep doing it over and over again, over time and through all the circumstances of life, and eventually you you grow in wisdom. 
Well, Solomon is is teaching us about the importance of wisdom. So I'm gonna I'm gonna actually back up one chapter before we get into Proverbs three, and I'll start in the first few verses of chapter two, just so you can hear Solomon talking about the importance of wisdom. Talking to his son here, Solomon says, "My son, if you receive my words." And treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding. Yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. Drop your eyes down to, to verse 9. He goes on, he says, Then you will understand the righteousness, you will understand righteousness and justice and equity, every good path. For wisdom will come into your heart, and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. Discretion will watch over you, understanding will guard you, delivering you from the way of evil, from men of perverted speech, who forsake the paths of uprightness, who walk in the ways of darkness, who rejoice in doing evil, and delight in in the perverseness of evil. Men whose paths are crooked and who are devious in their ways. So you'll be delivered from the forbidden woman, from the the adulteress with her, her smooth words, who forsakes the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God. For her house sinks down to death and her paths to the departed. None who go to her come back, nor do they regain the paths of life. So you will walk in the way of good and keep to the paths of right of rightness of the righteous, sorry. For the upright will inherit the land, and those with integrity will remain in it. But the wicked will be cut off from the land, and the treacherous will be rooted out of it. So Solomon is talking about the, the benefits of wisdom and the value of wisdom and the necessity of seeking wisdom. He says it'll keep you from from bad influences, from people who are going to um, cause you to go down the wrong path. He says it will keep you from, from sexual immorality. And it will cause blessing in your life. So we know, that we, should, we know that we should seek wisdom. But where do we find wisdom? That's the hard question. As you can see, I've, I've titled this message Features of Tangible Wisdom. And I think for many of us, wisdom seems so intangible. The world offers us cheap substitutes for wisdom. And unfortunately, I think we as Christians can often be um, in the dark about it ourselves as to where we find wisdom. So as we get ready to get started here, I want to just open it up and see if you, any of you have feedback about just some of the wrong places that we tend to look for wisdom in. Where we all, we all want to find wisdom, and yet, like I say, often don't know where to look. Um, and the world, as I say, has cheap substitutes. They've got um, just, you've got conventional wisdom that would, would say you have to, I don't know, you have to put yourself forward or no one else will. You have to look out for number one. Um, you've got secular psychology that may have plenty of, of accurate and helpful observations, and yet it can't be trusted as an authoritative source for telling us about ourselves and 
and about our souls and how we how we work and about sin and the issues that we have um, because we need the Bible for that and and nothing else alone without the Bible can can solve our problems but do any of you have any other thoughts about just other areas where we tend to look for wisdom in the wrong places or we're told to look for wisdom in, in certain places that are that are not helpful? Self-help books. Self-help books, yep. Yeah, there's all kinds of stuff out there about like five ways to do whatever, to have a happy life or to be a successful person or whatever, yeah. Absolutely. Anything else? Yes, there's the radio. <laughs> there's all kinds of, I don't know, shows out there telling you how to think about certain issues. Um, now most of that is on the internet, um, but a lot of it is is still just worldly and just, frankly, inaccurate. There's there's truth mixed with error. There's there's truth there, but but definitely error mixed in. Cody. Mm. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And that that echo chamber is pretty comfortable, but often can be really, really damaging and, and a dangerous place to stay. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. So we seek wisdom in in so many wrong places, and are often just ignorant about where we should be seeking wisdom or how to how specifically to to seek wisdom. And as I said, I think a lot of times when we hear the word wisdom, it sounds pretty abstract. One of the problems is it's a, it's a general term. It's, it's synthesizing a lot of, of concepts and bringing them together. But for us, it seems intangible and, and hard to get our, our minds around. We may assume that wisdom is something that automatically comes when we're old um, and that we can't do much about right now. We just have to wait for it and hope it happens to us later. Well, that's definitely not the case, and I'm thankful. Um, uh, Psalm 119.99 says that... um, He says that the, the psalmist here says, I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. So if it's possible to have more understanding than our, our teachers even, in, and in that culture, teachers typically would have been older, it's possible for us to get ahead in wisdom. We want to do that. And he says this by meditating on your testimonies, on the Word of God. So in our passage here, we're going to get more specific. Solomon's going to give us three tangible pursuits of a wise person. Three tangible pursuits of a wise person. And these are, these are basically three things that you want to be pursuing in order to become a wise person. There are also three marks of wisdom. These will be in the life of a wise person, but they're also the means by which we grow in wisdom. So the first tangible, tangible pursuit of a wise person is obedient attention to sound teaching. Let's read verses 1 and 2 of Proverbs 3. Solomon says, My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Solomon's giving 
an urgent plea to his son here. He says, he says, my son, do not forget my teaching. So he's telling him, don't forget. But it's, it's not as though he's saying, don't forget, but rather remember. He is saying that, but he's saying more than that. He's not just talking about retaining information in your intellectual memory. It's forget versus keep. That's what he says. Do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. So you can memorize scripture, and it's great, and we should. But if you memorize it, and yet don't do anything about it, and don't put it into practice, you don't gain anything by it. So, I'll give you my attempt to define what he means by, in in this context, by forgetting sound teaching. Based on the context, I would say it's to disregard something, to fail to recognize its importance, and to make little or no effort to connect a particular truth to one's real life. To disregard something, in this case, his father's teaching, to fail to recognize its importance, and to make little or no effort to connect particular truth to one's real life. And he tells them, don't forget my commandments. This doesn't just refer to fatherly advice in general, although fatherly advice is great. But in this passage, Solomon is, is speaking on behalf of God. He's, he's authoring scripture here, so he's got the, the authority of divine inspiration behind him. And I think this has some, some implications. One, for, um, for how you parents train your children. You want to you be sure that the things you insist on and, and drill into your kids are, are based in scripture. Obviously, you have to make more specific applications in, in areas where Scripture doesn't give a command, and, sh- and that's fine. You should do that. And yet, you need to make it clear that, that you're, you're getting your, your theology and your practice from Scripture, rightly interpreted, and make that clear to them so that they'll be able to, to respect what you teach and, when they're old enough, go to the Word for themselves and seek to order their lives by it. I think it also has implications for how we listen to instruction and commands. We want to make sure that the instruction we listen to, the things we fill our mind with, the things that we're influenced by, are accurately based on Scripture. And when I say accurately based, I mean based on Scripture, a particular passage, and that's actually what the passage means. And that's actually what the passage would have us do and how it would have us apply it. And then we have to actually do what it says. Someone once said, appreciation of truth is not the same as application of truth. I found that really helpful. Appreciation of truth is not the same as application of truth. James says the same thing in, in James one twenty two through 25. He says, but be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. 
for he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he is like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Back in Proverbs 3, notice that verse 2 gives a promise. If you do heed sound teaching. Verse 2, he says, For length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. In Proverbs, you probably know this, but the, the Proverbs are not, not giving airtight promises that are true 100% of the time. You do this, and this other thing will necessarily happen all the time. That's not the point. These are general principles about normal outcomes of a particular way of life. But it doesn't minimize the profoundness of what Solomon's saying here. He's really telling his son that the best way to set yourself up for a long and peaceful life is to heed sound teaching. And it's so radically different from some of the ways the, the world seeks a long life and, and peacefulness. Unbelievers and unfortunately ourselves sometimes tend to rely too much on on the things we eat or the the lifestyle we live or how much money we have in the bank or the the quality of our investments. We think those things are going to keep us alive longer and make us happier. Solomon makes it a lot simpler. He says if you want to live a long and peaceful life, the best way to do that is know what God says and obey it and pay attention to it. So how does this apply for Christians in the 21st century? We're not, Solomon's not our, our father. We don't have this, this sage advice coming to us directly. Is this how, should, how we should treat our own father's advice? I'd say yes, definitely, if it's, if it's based on Scripture. But I think it applies more broadly than that. I think this applies to all truly biblical instruction. And especially, I would say, when it, it comes from a wise and godly person. We should always be obedient to the word. But if we're not sure what the word says or how it would apply to a particular situation and we need someone else to help, we should pay a special level of attention to people who are, are living a wise and godly lives themselves. So that begs the question, and I'll, I'll open up this for discussion as well. How can we know if a, if a specific teaching or program of teaching or a, or a specific piece of advice is truly biblical? Anyone have any thoughts on that? Someone gives you a piece of advice. Maybe they even say it's based on this verse. How do you know that it's actually biblical advice you're getting? Any thoughts? How can we tell if it's actually biblical, whether it's a sermon, whether it's a piece of advice? all of Scripture to make sure that what's being said is consistent yep. for clarity purposes. Yeah, absolutely. So they're not building a, a unique theology out of one verse that's totally contrary to everything else Scripture says. Yeah, absolutely. Anything else? Yeah. Yeah, 
That's important. The Holy Spirit helps you and helps you helps illumine the word to you. Yeah, absolutely. Bob? Ask and get advice from somebody you know. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. You've seen them walk the walk. You know that they're accurately interpreting and obeying scripture. Yeah, it's huge. I would say another thing is when they give us advice and they tell us this comes from scripture in this passage, first they need to be able to do that if they're if they're saying this is a, a clear command. They need to be able to do that. And we need to be able to see exactly where they get it in the text. It needs to not be vague. It needs to be specific. And we need to see it there. We need to be able to look for ourselves and see it. And we need to be able to see how they came to that conclusion of why the text means that. If we have to, if it takes some sort of complicated explanation that, that no one could ever understand or come to that conclusion on their own, it may not be a, a biblical interpretation of that text. And if you're younger in the faith, then it can, it can be pretty overwhelming when you first start as well. And my encouragement would just be, you'll grow in that, especially if you, if you practice your discernment in all the areas you know how and continue learning more and more of the Bible. You'll, like Bobby said, you'll be able to, to relate it to other parts of the Bible and you'll, you'll be able to have a, a much better idea of what, what a particular text might might say when you when you're more acquainted with where it fits in the Bible and what else is going on in in the flow of of uh, of biblical revelation. So how can we obey this command to to heed sound teaching? What do we need to be doing? Well, one, we need to be discerning about what teaching we listen to, the things that we fill our minds with, the things that we allow to influence us. We're probably being influenced more than we realize. So that's. That's one application or implication is we need to be cautious and discerning about the influences we allow in our lives. We also need to be diligent to fill our minds with the good teaching that we have available to us. I think it's often easy to get lazy about how much I'm putting into my mind and just freewheel, either just, I don't know, listen to music when I have free time or do something else that's that's less profitable than filling my mind with biblical truth. So we need to be diligent in that. And as we're doing that, we need to listen not just for information. Gaining knowledge is good, but that's not our only goal. That's not even the main goal. But we want to be listening for what effect this information should have on our lives. It can be explanation. Sometimes a, a biblical text explains things that we didn't know about ourselves. It says, if this is true in your life, it's because of this. Or so many other ways that the Bible explains to us who we are and, and why we are the way that we are. And how our lives ought to work. Sometimes it can bring conviction. It can bring sin to mind that we need to repent of. It can bring a rebuke when we're actively going in a, in a pattern of, of unrepentant sin can bring encouragement when we're discouraged and, and, and lacking the, the zeal to keep going in the, in the fight. It can bring motivation. It can focus our minds on, on truths that are important and inspiring and, and motivate us to pursue God harder. It can bring thankfulness for what God has done for us. It can cause us to want to worship Him. 
it can bring us implications so that we can see how a, how a text might might affect our lives, and it can bring us specific applications. Sometimes there are direct commands, do this. And so those are the things we want to be listening for and seeking to obey in our lives, not only information. So the first tangible pursuit of a wise person is obedient attention to sound, sound teaching. The second is diligent cultivation of godly character. Diligent cultivation of godly character. Let's read verses 3 and 4. He says, Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck and write them on the tablet of your heart. So you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. The words here for steadfast love and faithfulness, it's two words. Um, You're probably familiar. Steadfast love, sometimes translated loving kindness. Faithfulness also can be translated translated truth sometimes. Um, They're often portrayed in Scripture as attributes of God. The the first one, steadfast love, loving kindness, can be loyalty or or covenant-keeping love, faithfulness, goodness, graciousness. The second one, faithfulness, could be consistency, could be truthfulness, trustworthiness, reliability. So the, it begs the question, though. See, he says, don't, don't let steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Whose steadfast love and faithfulness are we talking about? Is it, is it the sons or is it God's? Well, both are possible. There are plenty of places in Scripture where, where it's used to refer to God, but there are other places where it's, it's talking about a human attribute. So humans can, di- can display these attributes as well. And the conclusion I've come to from the context, I think, is that it's, not I think, I'm convinced, is that it's man's in this case. These are virtues in this passage that, that Solomon is telling his son to, to be cultivating. And I think they're, they're sort of summary virtues that imply that a, a person is, is godly in their character in general, not just in a couple of areas. These are, these are broad terms. It's kind of like calling someone a, a faithful man or a faithful woman or a faithful pastor. You're not just highlighting an area of faithfulness. You're, you're talking about they're, they're an obedient, mature, godly person. So he's saying that this, this second priority or second pursuit is that we need to be cultivating godly character in our lives. And it's the necessary outflow of obedience to the first command to heed sound teaching. If you're truly heeding sound teaching the way Solomon wants you to, you'll be growing in godly character. And if you flip that, if you flip that around, if you're not growing in godly character... It shows you're not actually heeding sound teaching. This has big implications for us who are in a, a church that prioritizes sound teaching. I think it can be tempting to, to get lazy and think that we'll, we'll grow by osmosis, being around good teaching. But we actually have to apply it and obey it in our lives, or it won't do us any good. And if we create a, a habit of hearing and forgetting, or hearing and intentionally disobeying, we're setting ourselves up for 
a hard heart and a seared conscience. Solomon says, not only don't let these things forsake you, but he says, bind them around your neck, write them upon the tablet of your heart. He's saying we need to keep godly character and the cultivation of it always in our minds and on our hearts. Just like the the command in, in verse 1 was followed by a promise, now this command in verse 3 is followed by a promise. So in verse, in verse 4, he says, So you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. So the reward of, of obeying this command is favor and good success with God and men. Reminds me of what it says in Luke, in, um, in Luke about Jesus. As he was, he was growing up, it says, Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. And this passage is saying we're able to do that as well. But Solomon has more to say, and I'll, I'll spend a, a good chunk of our time here. So the, the, the third tangible pursuit of a wise person is meticulous renovation of our thinking and trusting. Meticulous renovation of our thinking and trusting. Let's look at verses 5 through 8. And I'm sure you're familiar with these verses. He says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. So notice these alternating do's and don'ts here. Do trust in the Lord. Don't lean on your own understanding. Do acknowledge God in all your ways. Don't think of yourself as being wise. Do fear the Lord and do turn away from evil. Since the fall, we're pre-programmed to be deceived. And even once we're saved, we're given new hearts and we're given understanding. But we're still constantly drifting toward deception and unbelief. Your heart's like a to use an analogy, maybe like a baby, you laying on laying on its parents' bed, you have to keep an eye on the baby, or it's going to roll right off and hurt itself. If you've ever baby-proofed your house, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You got to cover up the wall outlets. You've got to put a, a gate at the top of the stairs. You got to hide anything that's small enough to be swallowed. When I was a kid, we had a wood stove in our house, and my parents had to be really careful of that, not to, not to let a baby loose in that room. Well, then, if that's not hard enough, then you go to a, a friend's house, and they haven't baby-proofed their house, and you have to just keep an extra close eye on your baby. Well, I would say our hearts are a lot like babies in a house that's not baby-proofed. If we just leave them alone and think they're going to be okay, they're sure to get hurt. So what are the dangers for our hearts? It's not, it's not wall outlets or, or stairs. It's deception and idolatry and external sin as well. But I'm afraid that we too often emphasize the external sin and, and forget about the others. You may not get drunk or curse a lot or you may not walk out on your wife but are you concerned about the pride that's in your heart 
or your fear of man that tempts you to act one way around this person and another way around that person. Or that feeling you get maybe at work or somewhere else in life where when a, a co-worker or, or a friend doesn't treat you the way you think you ought to be treated. And you have this angst about it and you want to go home and, and complain to your wife. and You're tempted to call it frustration. God calls it sinful anger. How are you doing in those areas? Are you even noticing that they're problematic? Or does it seem like it's, it's pretty much okay as long as this sin just mostly stays in your mind and doesn't go anywhere else? Well, if it's so important to, to monitor our hearts in this way, what are some specific ways that this passage tells us to do that? Let's go through these, these verses. In verse 5, he says, Trust in the Lord. We need to place, place our confidence in God and give him the benefit of the doubt even when what he says doesn't make sense to us. Trust is the opposite of suspicion. If we suspect someone, we're, we keep them at arm's distance. And we make sure there's always an escape route if what they tell us doesn't add up. This is necessary t- sometimes when we're dealing with sinful human beings. What is the worst thing you can do when you're dealing with God? You can't have a right relationship with God when there's an escape hatch. And if you're tentative in your submission and your your trust in Him. It's so easy to trust God until something He says either doesn't make sense or doesn't seem right to us or demands more of us than is comfortable. Then it's pretty tough to, to actually do what God says with no questions asked and no hesitation. And then it's easy to fall back on our own understanding. When God gives us a command, we say, I know God says I should do X, but X is really hard. Couldn't I just do Y? It's, it's pretty close. It's similar. Isn't that pretty much the same thing? Or when God makes a truth claim, we might be tempted to say, I know this passage says this, but that just can't be right. That doesn't seem right. How can that be true? When we feel that that cognitive dissonance, we're tempted to search for an alternative interpretation of that text, even if we have to run roughshod over exactly what it says. That's why we need this constant renovation of our thinking and our trusting. We're so prone to be self-deceived. We need to be constantly cleaning out the cobwebs and the trash that build up of the lies that we start to believe. That's why Solomon says that you need to trust the Lord with all your heart. We might be tempted to say, God, I'm willing to believe what you say in most areas, but when it comes to this one passage or this one truth, it's just a little hard for me to swallow. Or we can say, God, I'm willing to obey you in most areas, but this one command sure is hard, and it really doesn't seem like it has a whole lot of point. It doesn't seem like it makes that much difference. Maybe that applies to other people, but surely not me. I don't need to really make that a priority. But that is exactly when we need to not lean on our own understanding. We need to be intensely skeptical of our own perception about what's right and what's best. I can't help but but reference Genesis 3 here. When Eve was being tempted to eat the fruit, it says, When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, 
and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. Seemed like a good idea to her. Solomon says, in, in all your ways, acknowledge him. There can't be any parts of your life that you're not willing to submit to God's rule. This removes any sort of false dichotomy between the secular and the sacred areas of your life. And a major implication of this is we need to consult God's word for all areas of our thinking and our practice. We don't just do things because it's the way we've always done it. We need to know what God's word says about it and let that be the final word. And just as the the prior commands had a promise, we have another promise here in in verse 6. He says, and he will make straight your paths. This doesn't mean that everything in your life is going to be easy. It doesn't mean that you'll have a pain-free life. And it doesn't mean that God is magically going to tell you which job to take or what spouse to marry or what car to buy. That's not what it means by make your path straight. But it does mean that God will take care of you. And you don't need to worry when you're obeying what he says. And it means that your future rests securely in his hands. He may allow you to go through suffering, but he won't allow you to suffer ultimate harm. As Romans 8.28 says, and you all know the verse, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. But we have to remember, God is the one who decides what's good for us. What's good for us is conformity to to the likeness of Christ. We don't always know what's good for us in a particular circumstance, but God does. And he often uses hard things to conform us to Christ's likeness, and that's okay, he can do that. And that's still good for us. But we can always rest assured that whatever he does in our life, it's for our ultimate good. So how's your trust in God? Do you trust him even when what he says doesn't line up with what you previously thought or what seems right or what seems best or what seems like it would be good for you? How about when he brings difficulty into your life and and you can't see a good reason for it? Or how about when God tells you to do something that's hard and there's another option that seems a whole lot easier and more enjoyable? Well, let's read verses 7 and 8 and it will answer that question. It says, Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. It says, do not be wise in your own eyes. Solomon's saying, don't trust yourself. Yourself is going to lie to you if you give it half a chance. You need to be your own greatest skeptic and greatest critic. The world will tell you, follow, follow your heart. Jeremiah 17.9 says, your heart's wicked. It's not safe. Your heart is not your friend. Your heart's a liar. And your heart will destroy you if you let it. So what does this self-skepticism look like? 
Well, when, when something's taught in Scripture that's hard to understand or hard to, to reconcile with other truth in Scripture, you assume that the passage is right and that your prior understanding and assumptions are wrong. When a command is hard or doesn't seem all that important, you need to assume that you need to do it regardless of how much it might cost you regardless of whether you think there might be a better way. You need to assume that your quote-unquote better way is a way of death. It will not be better at all, but will destroy you. Next, Solomon says, fear the Lord. This is something that's, that's woefully lacking in our culture, and even in, in popular Christian culture. In, in American Christianity, this is, it has shrunk God down to, to a sympathetic best friend almost who, who lives mostly to comfort us in our sadness and our difficulties. And he does. I'm not trying to min- minimize that by any means. God does call us friends. Yet that doesn't mean that we should think of him as, as just our buddy or, or someone that we go to only for sympathy. No, he's, he's to be feared and revered. How do we know if we're fearing God? What does that look like? Well, a really good indication is what Solomon says next. Are you turning away from evil? If you fear God, you will. So that means we don't flirt around with evil. We don't try to see how close to the line we can get. No, we run away from it. In the next chapter, Proverbs four fourteen and 15, Solomon says, Do not enter the path, of the, the path of the wicked, and do not walk in the way of evil. Avoid it. Do not go on it. Turn away from it and pass on. And this doesn't just mean staying away from any new sins, staying away from temptation to do something you haven't done before. No, it, it also means that we need to get after it in declaring an all-out war on the sins that we already know about that are in our lives. I think it can be tempting to think that we're doing okay as long as we don't become any more sinful than we are. As long as we, as long as we keep the few quote-unquote small sin patterns we've got, we're okay. But sins and sin patterns are, are like parasites. They get bigger if you leave them alone. And then they have lots of babies. We have to be getting them out of there and declaring war on them. How crazy would it be to say, I know I've got some parasites, but there aren't that many. They're not causing me a whole lot of discomfort. And they're sure not as bad as Joe's parasites over there. That would be absolutely crazy and absolutely foolish. But that's often how we view our patterns of sin in our life. But God's not giving these commands because he's a a killjoy and he wants to ruin our fun. No, he's he's not only telling us this for his glory, but it's also for our own good. Look at verse 8. He says it will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. The the word for flesh here, it's a, a Hebrew way of saying your whole person. He's essentially saying if you obey verse 7, it'll go well with you. 
Solomon's not promoting some sort of health, wealth gospel. I already mentioned that the Proverbs are not saying that this is exactly what's going to happen 100% of the time. But there's still truth there. Ask a drug addict if disobeying God is easy and healthy and enjoyable. Or as terrible as it sounds, ask a person with AIDS if departing from biblical confines of sexuality is a good idea. We need to remember, of course, that in a fallen world, we can suffer even when we are doing right. Sometimes we can suffer because of other people's sin. Someone can contract AIDS who's never committed any kind of sexual sin. Some babies are born addicted to the drugs that their parents were on. Someday perfect justice will be served, but not now. And for now, we still need to heed these warnings in Scripture, even when we don't immediately get the results that we might expect. So what are the areas in your life that that you need to be trusting God, that you're resistant toward? Maybe pockets of unbelief in your life that that you're, you're cherishing and you won't let go of. Sin patterns that don't seem like a big enough deal to deal with. Or are you just not trusting God? Are you suspicious of Him? How do you handle the trials in your life? Do you think that God's out to get you when your life is hard and you can't see a good reason for the, the hard circumstances? Do you trust Him with all your heart and not just in select areas? Do you lean on your own understanding as a safety, as a fallback, in case God and His Word don't quite work out? Do you trust your own, your own judgment of things a little too much, your own judgment of what's right and wrong, what's helpful, what's good for you? Do you fear God like you should? Or are you allowing yourself to become a little flippant about spiritual things and, and a little too casual? Are you turning away from evil or are you toying with it? Or ignoring the, the evil that's already in your life? Are you trying to stay away from temptation? What are you doing about the patterns of sin that you already know are in your life, even if they seem small and pretty insignificant to you? Are you doing your best to pull them up by the roots, or are you content to just keep them trimmed, keep them small, or seemingly small? Well, these are these are things that are easy to say and hard to put into practice, but I pray and trust that that the Lord will help us to start putting these into practice this week and to be coming back to this passage and thinking about it. These, these three tangible pursuits of a wise person. Obedient attention to sound teaching. Diligent cultivation of godly character. And meticulous renovation of your thinking and trusting. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word and its clarity and the truth and the fact that it it sees inside us and you see inside us. You know exactly what we need. You see us more clearly than we do. And you're able to tell us what we need and where, where the problems lie in our lives. I pray that you would help us to, to heed your instruction, to seek it out, to fill our minds with it. I pray that you would help us to 
diligently pursue the character that you would have for us over the long haul. And I pray that in order to do that, we would be meticulously renovating our thinking that is so prone to drift, so prone to to just get junked up with lies and and just just trash that is unhelpful and distorts our view and and really distorts our lives when we start to believe those lies. I, I pray that you would help us this week to be more proactive about these things and to be motivated to to pursue faith that would outflow in obedience. As as Paul says in First Thessalonians and, and this passage says here that that would lead to a, a wise life and and biblical maturity that honors you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you all.